You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If this is the first time we meet, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue of all of the past episodes that you may have missed. And also speaking about past episodes, for those of you who have subscribed to the podcast via your podcast app, you will have seen the first five of our global macro episodes, which we highly recommend you listen to. There are some amazing guests in the series. And of course, we would be ever so grateful if you would take a few seconds out of your day to share it on your own social media channels, as we truly believe these will help investors make better and more informed decisions as we go into a potentially even more uncertain future than what we have seen so far. Mart, morning. Oh, sure. I say good afternoon. How are you doing? Yeah, lunchtime. I'm doing fine. Hello from a rainy Sunday Munich day. Yeah, well, here in Denmark, it's uh, gray and windy, so not the summer that uh, you kind of hoped for, but there we are. It's probably a good day to do some podcasting, which is exactly. what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, of course, I mean, if you look at the weather, you wouldn't notice that we just completed another month, namely the month of July, which kind of, to me, was an interesting month, right? Because everything went up, well... I mean, almost. But in terms of the main asset classes, you had stocks going up, you had bonds going up, you had gold going up, and of course, a lot of the other metals, they all went up. And not just by a little. I mean, gold was up 12% and the cousin silver, a mighty 36%. And then when you remember back in March, they all went down together, at least during the most kind of intense part of the sell-off. And to me, that's kind of interesting and I'll get to that in a second. I mean, there were a few markets, at least on our side, that we trade that did go down. I mean, we had VIX, we had corn, we had the dollar. One of the energies, I think it was ARPOP, that went down, and then the Nikkei and the Euro stocks. And that's pretty much it. So this positive correlation that we've now seen play out, both in March on the downside, now in July on the upside, frankly, it could actually be really bad news for many investors. And I know this sounds a little bit counterintuitive, so maybe we'll spend a little bit of time later on in our conversation today digging into that. But as I said, July just finished. How was the week? How was the month, Mortz? Well, kind of the same stuff that happened the week before and the week before that. I, I lost a little bit of money, I think 50 basis points, and um, no notable really big winning or losing positions. It's just everything's around flattish, dragging along. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight, with the V-shaped recovery that we have seen in the equity markets, uh, you know, it took me a while to really get long. I think I only went long the S&P 500 probably 10 days or so ago, right? So haven't been long enough, the equities with the benefit of hindsight. And I had a couple of positions on that were a real drag to my portfolio, for instance, currencies, right? I mean, we've all been long the US dollar. I, I actually still am long the US dollar. But when you, you know, Look what has happened, for instance, versus the euro, but also versus uh, the Aussie dollar. I mean, all of that over the weeks, the past couple of weeks produced uh, a bunch of losses, which counterbalanced the gains, more than counterbalanced the gains. 
that I've made from, for instance, being long gold and being long silver in markets such as these. Well, what can I say? I'm down, I'm down about 4% now for the year. So it's uh, not the end of the world. I mean, this can change within a month or within a week. Um, (laughs) Sometimes within two days. So uh, just keep on moving along. Yeah, I mean, kind of the same picture on our side. And what was interesting is I think we had about 75% of the trading days in July were down days, right? So normally if you think about that, you think, okay, well, that's not going to be a very good month. But actually... Like you, it was just a very small down month, really. And as you said, yeah, I mean, obviously, the month of July, to some extent, have shown the difference between different types of trend following. No doubt, some uh, trend following systems um, probably flipped their equity positions sooner, their dollar positions sooner. And of course, if you got silver right in terms of exposure, I mean, my God, that certainly helped. So... I think you're right. There's a, you know, it, this is kind of where there is dispersion in returns, certainly based on speed, certainly based on risk management techniques, and, and of course, certainly based on, on the markets you trade. And so in from that respect, it's kind of interesting. But on the other hand, I mean, probably like yourself, our exposure is not very high and it's it's been pretty quiet for, for the most part. Commodities and currencies were the main losing sector on our sides, uh, especially things like coffee, soybean oil, and the yen. They definitely were the most challenging for us. Equities, fixed income, volatility, and gold were the best performing sectors in July. And as I said, I mean, they all went up except for volatility, and which is kind of... Um, well, as I said in my introduction, I mean, to me... And I know it's just a sample of two, but you did have March where everything went down together. Now you have July, everything goes up together. And I want, I wonder if this is kind of the early, early warning signs that investors who have relied on a certain correlation between these assets should pay attention. I couldn't help notice that our good friend Chris Cole, who's written extensively on this topic, um, some great white papers came out again yesterday on on Real Vision, another uh, really good interview, I thought, and and continued to talk about kind of the the dangers you see in lots of institutional portfolios because they they chase the excess yield, but in doing so, they end up with highly correlated investments rather than biting the bullet and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to take something on board that is not going to be correlated, but also means that when stocks go up, it's not going to do as well as as stocks, for example, which is hard to defend maybe in the investment committee, in the boardrooms, but in the long run, it's just so valuable to have that non-correlation. And to many, um, or at least in my mind, I mean, there aren't that many asset classes you can just go out and find that gives you non-correlation overall and, and certainly has the ability at least to to do well during an equity crisis, it kind of comes down to volatility strategies like the one that Chris is trading and and other vol strategies, and then trend following to a large extent. So I, you know, hopefully it could lead to more interest overall in these two um, areas. I don't know if that's something you notice as well in in your own conversations. Or it's not on the on the um, institutional side. I'm afraid to say. You know, there's a couple of uh, ideas out there saying like your core portfolio should be something like, you know, 25% gold and 25% stocks and 25% inflation-linked bonds and, you know, things like that. 
as opposed to the standard 60-40 type of mix, right? With only a very small allocation to markets such as, for instance, mm. gold or trend following. And those alternative, quote-unquote, alternative combinations have done really well over decades. So I think people should have a look at that. At the same time, I fear that institutional portfolios, they will have difficulties putting that stuff on. When we look at it, I think, you know, the average allocation to gold is, what, 1%, if that, or even less, mm. something. But institutional investors, they would have the capabilities, the technological capabilities, the operational capabilities to have a greater exposure to gold and a greater exposure to trend following. But they're essentially handcuffed. They don't do it because of career risk or because of regulatory frameworks where they need to be exposed to the bond market and they have no other chance than, you know, that. I agree with, you know, Chris Cole's observations that people should have a look at a different portfolio mixture, but I don't think it'll, it's going to be easy or even possible for institutional investors to, to pull that out. No, the other thing he brings up is kind of the, the value of having these strategies, meaning in terms of liquidity, right? So the way he describes it is that a dollar invested in a, a, a say, a non-correlated strategy like trend following at the heat of the moment in March, where equities were down 30 plus percent and, and so on and so forth, where you kind of really needed to be able to have a little bit of room to to maybe rebalance and buy some equities. That liquidity that you have in futures, that you have in, in, in uh, you know, trend-following strategies, and maybe also involved strategies. Obviously, the VIX is a pretty liquid market. He talks about the value of that, which I think is true. I mean, that's the other thing that I worry about as and when the next real crisis come is, is just liquidity. We've seen signs again of this short term. I mean, even the U.S. Treasury market managed to freeze up in March, I don't think a lot of people realized that that's why the Fed came in so large, so to speak. I mean, it was really the, the treasury market that freezed up completely, which is scary because it's meant to be pretty much the most liquid uh, market in the world. So liquidity becomes an issue. And and I like a lot of the, the analogies that, that Chris uses when he described these things. And yesterday uh, he, he came up with another one, which was a little bit about now that the the English Premier League has just finished with Liverpool winning the championship in the UK this year. And, and what he was talking about, he often has this uh, analogy with the importance of Dennis Rodman on a basketball team, even though he didn't score any goals. He was just, once you put him on a team with people who can score, the whole team goes up dramatically and becomes, you know, champion, so to speak. But he was describing sort of these um, strategies like trend, like volatility strategies. It's a little bit like making sure that when you build your team, you actually go out and you get a really good goalie and you get a really good defense. Because even though they're not going to score goals for you, they just allow your team to perhaps be more offensive. So in our case, if you have a healthy allocation to trend following, if you have a healthy allocation to some kind of, say, volatility strategy, it actually allows you to own more equities at the end of the day without taking too crazy risk levels. So again, I think that's another nuance that even though people often associate with what we do as some kind of crisis alpha, yeah, but maybe we should turn it around and think about, well, if you have us in your portfolio, it will allow you to have perhaps an even healthier allocation to 
expertise, which I think is also a, an interesting way of looking at it. I agree. And I think it creates opportunities, right? In the same way that Dennis Rodman is in the Hall of Fame for basketball because it's been such a great rebounder. He was rebounding yeah. the ball like nobody else, right? And then when he rebounded the ball, he put the Bulls back into play and then somebody else could actually, you know, throw a basket, Michael Jordan, Pippen, yeah. whoever it was, right? And it's kind of like um, with a trend-following strategy or another alternative strategy that actually performs well, long volatility strategy, that performs well when everything else performs poorly, equity markets, for instance. And it creates these extremely valuable opportunities if they are liquid, like you say, Niels, if you have liquidity. And in a, in a month, like say March or April, when Don has been doing well, I have been doing well with my trend following strategy, you are up for the year, right? You're making money when everybody else is losing money. You can go in and, you know, increase the allocation to equities if this is what you want to do. I'm not saying that everybody should be doing that, right? But there are some people who would, like you say, it mixes well with equities. This is the time then for you to buy more equities at that point in time. So opportunity is is very valuable here. Yeah, and I certainly saw it play out in real time during the COVID crisis. We had in particular one investor who just had a very systematic approach to it and said, yeah, you know, I've got some good profits in my trend uh, and obviously lots of losses in equity. So I'm going to take some of the trend and put it into equities. And then during July, they were flipping it back again to increase the exposure to trend and, and probably decreasing uh, equities, I'm assuming. And what a great way to improve your returns without really taking a hell of a lot of extra risk, but just being very disciplined in your rebalancing. And it reminds me of the conversation I had with Daniel Crosby from a behavioral investor point of view, and that is in certainly in his research, even simple rules that everyone can implement will significantly enhance your returns over time. And of course, when we had Eric Crittenden on, on the podcast, I mean, he was just talking about having a balance between stocks and, and trend following with kind of like an annual rebalancing. I mean, it's not difficult to do. So I think if we if we all become a little bit more disciplined with our investments, but not overcomplicating them, I think it can we can improve. I agree. Moritz, we can always jump back and forth to what we want to talk about, but I do want to bring up some of the questions we've been pushing in front of us because we have had a couple of guests. And so I, I feel I owe a few answers for the last few weeks. One of them is actually to to Mike, um, but Mike, since your question is kind of focused a little bit to uh, to Rob, I hope you don't mind me waiting for Rob to come back in August, uh, and then I will address your question. I think it's probably what what you uh, get most out of. So I'm going to jump to another question from Bruno. It's a long one. So first of all, I'd like to thank you for the incredible podcast. Thanks very much, Bruno. I'm a Brazilian economist working with discretionary strategies, and now I'm trying to develop my own system. I've been listening to your podcast religiously every Monday for a year now and can't emphasize enough how much it has helped me. Okay, cool. Also, a special thanks to Rob, whose books are my go-to when thinking systematically. Absolutely 
things pass on to to Rob. I hope you're listening today as well, Rob. Regarding the secret project, not so secret anymore. The first two episodes released so far were great. The ideas discussed, they uh, there bring light on a lot of themes. I've been discussing with my colleagues in discretionary macro. Rest assured, I've shared the interviews with them. On a side note, I find it amusing how I'm reaching towards systematic while you guys bridge your own gap, certainly narrower, the other way around. Now to some questions regarding trend following. I've written this on Sunday, which will be late July, and waited for episode 97 before sending it. Surprisingly, these have been at least partially addressed on that episode, so please feel free to adapt them if needed. Okay, here are the questions. What is your favorite measure of liquidity and how, quote-unquote, liquid enough in your chosen thermometer a market has to be to be included in your portfolio? Let's start just with that. There's a couple more questions. So, Moritz, I mean, we just talked about liquidity, so it's topical to talk about. So, Okay, so how do we determine liquidity? So, average volume traded is uh, what I'm looking at primarily. So what I do is I look at the volume. So that's the number of contracts or the number of lots traded in a given market per day. This is multiplied with the notional value of that contract. And then I do these calculations for a couple of days and I take an average of the average daily volume traded. Now, what I want to make sure is that my own trading is never too large given the liquidity or relative to the liquidity that that market offers. So if you think that you want to be trading more than 3% or 4 or 5% of a market's volume on a given day, that I think is far, far, far too much, right? You want to be much, much smaller than that and just be a little bit of a participant in that market, but not a major footprint. So, but this is what I do. It's a simple calculation of number of lots traded times their value, which gives you the value traded on that day, observe it for a longer period of time, see how that develops. You can do a bar chart or something like that, right? And then see how that fits with your own capacity. Yeah, no, absolutely. We do it kind of similar. I mean, we do have rules for these things as well, of course. And and I think we use volume as well as our primary kind of input and trying to stay below a certain uh, percentage of the daily volume. But I, I will say, though, Bruno, that some of our guests have certainly said that they use open interest as really the gauge for how many, quote-unquote, hedges there are in the markets, and, and that's more meaningful for them, for their purposes. So, you know, open interest volume, I mean, I think there's not much else you can use, but then you have to come up with your own rules as to how you want to define the limit. For most people, it comes down to kind of the same, say, 100 markets or so that are, quote-unquote, very, very liquid that you can easily get in and out of. But of course, there are some commodity markets that even if they look liquid, I mean, certain times, they will be probably quite illiquid. And you're going to have the gap risk and all of those things, as we saw in in energies in February with huge open gap down in in um, over a weekend so those risks you have to take into account and that's why we talk so much about diversification and, and trading small next question from bruno is i'm struggling with co-movement i understand you don't want to size positions in markets with similar dynamics the same way i would with independent markets however i'm not sure exactly how to do that how do you take this into account so that's one of our other, other pet peeps projects <laughs> talking points 
Yeah. So I look at correlation. There are different ways to um, to calculate correlations. The, the most standard one is the Pearson correlation coefficient, which is defined between minus one and one. That's one that you know is generally used, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It does have a few statistical shortcomings, given the distribution profile of our trading, but it's good enough for what I do with it, which is figuring out how related a market tends to be to another market in my portfolio. Take heating oil and crude oil, for example. Those are two different markets, yet they both belong to the petroleum sector, and therefore they tend to move in a similar fashion on a daily basis. And I want to find out whether A, that's true, and B, if it is true, to what extent that is true. Like, is it really a strong and significant co-movement, a strong positive correlation, or is it more less than 0.5, closer to zero, which is uncorrelated? And what I then do is when I find those markets which have a persistently high correlation, a long-term correlation to one another, then that will therefore uh, impact my uh, risk sizing for those markets. Yeah, and I think, of course, having kind of an ongoing evaluation of correlations, even though they may not change a lot in the short term, but having that as part of your position sizing risk management, um, I think makes a lot of sense. But the other thing I want just to add to what Moritz said is that I think also, also overall, when you decide which market to want to trade, I mean, I think you can get a long way with just using common sense. Because at the end of the day, at some point, we need to make some quote unquote, discretionary decisions about which markets to trade, et cetera, et cetera. It can't all be algo driven, of course. So so I think if you just take a you know common sense approach, um, having a nice diversified portfolio, not too many markets in the same uh, sector, again, you you get pretty far. And then uh, the last question from Bruno is, do you only trade the first contract for each month? If not, uh, I extend the question about co-movements uh, to to this one. Whether we're trading always the front month contract. Yeah. No, so the answer to that is no. On some markets, I would say probably most of the markets, this is true. And it is the front month contract. So for instance, in the bond futures markets, right? Rolling from uh, right now, I'm trading the September contract, for instance, in the 10-year US futures, right? I'm not yet trading the December contract, but at some point, I will roll out, roll out of the September into the December. And there's really for that market, no point or not even the availability of contracts to trade farther out on the curve. But there are other markets, such as, for instance, the short-term interest rate markets. This is LIBOR, EURIBOR, EURODOLLAR, EURO-YEN, EURO-SWISS, those type of markets, where the liquidity is really available, you know, three, four, sometimes even five years out. And there is, depending on, you know, how you want to trade, but nobody is forcing you to only reference the front-month contract and roll that all the time. You know, you can point to the contract that, say, is, you know, uh, three years out. And you may then decide to only roll that every six months, right? Every six months, you roll to the next three-year contract or something like that. A similar type of thing could be done in the energy markets, where when you look at the uh, futures curve for crude oil, WTI and Brent, but also the related products such as, you know, gasoline, heating oil, gas oil, there is substantial liquidity, especially in the June and December expiration contracts 
for those markets, which you can point to. And you could, for instance, say, you know, instead of trading every month in uh, WTI, there is an expiry, there's a contract every month, right? January, February, March, all the way to December, one per month. Instead of doing that and rolling 12 times a year, you could say, just as an example, I'm going to roll uh, just, I'm only going to use the June and December contracts. Those are, those tend to be the two most liquid months. And then uh, once June goes into expiration, which in the case of WTI is in May, you would roll at that point in time into December. And then when December goes into expiration, which is in November, you will roll into the next June contract. So this reduces your rollovers. It reduces your commissions that you're paying, right? It reduces the bid offer that you're paying when you do the roll. It potentially reduces slippage. And it gets you to a different part of the curve. Whether that makes sense for your trading and the way that you want to work with your system is something that you have to figure out for yourself. But it's easily done. Just test it. Write your code, write your program, your Excel spreadsheet, whatever it is that you're using in such a way that you can flexibly switch between a time series that is based on using every contract to a time series that is using every nth contract, wherever you decide what N is. Yeah, and I think that's really good advice. And um, that definitely are some markets. I mean, of course, you could say energies where you do have a, a contract every month. I mean, some people do trade every month, but but certainly every other month is fine as well. And then as we talked with Rob about a little while ago, I mean, he only trades one contract of the 12 because it's liquid enough. Even if he's 11 months away from it, it's actually liquid enough for his purposes. If you're a larger firm, with a large pool of, of capital, you obviously can't do that. But but yeah, there's definitely a, a few things you can you can do to um, facilitate the way you want to trade. I mean, also the frequency and and as as Mart says, the roll cost involved. But also making sure you get because markets obviously do move differently. I mean, sometimes you do get a move in, in the front month that you don't really see as much in the following part of the curve. And so you you don't want to miss out too much on that either. So it's it's a balance and nobody knows the best approach in advance, but spreading it out is probably a good idea. Okay, next question is from Walter. Walter starts out with some praise for Rob. So we do we definitely want to bring that as well but then he goes on to say i was wondering how you guys deal with testing your code probably rob and mort's experience will be more relevant to me since i assume they don't have a team of developers that work with them but i'm interested in hearing your thoughts i asked because i trade systematically and i found bugs in my code nothing major but small details that deviate slightly from what i was intending to do so that's probably a question for you Moritz. Yeah, I cannot say that I have one and only one way of doing it. Um, but here is what I generally do. I, I look at individual trades. That is one of the things I'm doing. I look at the individual trades. It's kind of like a trade lock that my program produces where I can drill down and see, okay, here's a trade and there's a chart that relates to that trade. And I can then 
follow through and say, why did the system take that trade? What happened here? Ah, okay, it was a 150-day high. Okay, so we're going in. This is the entry price. This is the fill price, et cetera, et cetera. Right? So I'm going through individual trades. That's one way of, it's a cumbersome way because you don't want to be going through all the trades. That would, I mean, you could, but it will take a lot of time, right? That's a cumbersome way of doing things, but it is a way that forces you to pay attention and focus on individual trades and making sure that you understand that it is in line with what you had in mind and what you programmed. One other thing that I do is I create a dummy as easy as possible, dummy type of environment in Excel, which is, you know, Excel is it's not a coding language, but it's, you know, it's kind of like you can program in Excel and it's kind of like what you see is what you get. You, you look at the thing, right? You can see all the formulas, you can see the output, you can see how the thing evolves over time. And just, you know, take take a section, if not the entire program, take a section of the thing and make sure that you can get the exact same results in Excel, that's what I'm doing, that you will get with your program. And if there's a perfect match, then, you know, I'm pretty confident that when I get to the same thing in Excel, yeah, it's the, the, the code's working in the right way. It should be working the right way. And I do this for a couple of samples, and that gives me the confidence that what's there in the code is, is de facto correct. Yeah. And I, I would say on our side, we, we spend a lot of time on these reviews, and we kind of combine it with operational reviews, meaning that if we are thinking of a new idea or a new system or a tweak to a system, we're going to paper trade it for a while and we're going to have our operations team looking at the trades being spit out to see that there is nothing that looks weird or odd. And I have come across in my career where I just heard about other firms where there had been a change to the code and initially nothing showed up in terms of of a bug, but then suddenly one day something just went a little bit crazy and uh, suddenly position size or trade size were dramatically different to what it should have been, but it wasn't de detected because the error didn't show up until later. So I don't think you can, I know some people do it, especially if they're not, I mean, if they're managing their own money. Of course, it's their risk and it's their code. And and some will say once it's there and we've followed it for a while, we'll actually just let it run, even if we go on holiday. And maybe that's actually what Rob does, that he he has done so much testing that he feels confident in that. But I do think it's one of those things where it's always good to keep an eye on things. And actually on our side, I would say maybe we're a little bit old-fashioned in that sense, but we don't allow the model to go straight to the market. We actually want a person, i.e. one of our traders, to review the order before it gets implemented. And that's just how we want to do it, to make sure that nothing goes wrong, really. Yeah. I mean, there's there's also, for me, there's a difference. What I've just described is what I do personally, right? Yeah. Back, back at home, I have nobody else to work with to check on me. So I have to make sure that what I'm putting in code and what I design is correct. And I have to do that by, my, by myself. Yeah. Now, in the business we go about it in a different way because there are more people and, you know, I can make sure that those people work, you know, they cooperate with each other, but they're also independent from each other at a certain stage of the research process. So if someone comes up with a new trading system, we, 
we talk about the trading system, you know, why that system should be there, what it's about, you know, all that type of stuff. Okay, so here's the code in Python, for instance. If we get to the point where we say, look, this is this is really good stuff. This is not curfit. That does have an added value. It is diversifying this, that, and the other thing. So for some reason, we're saying it's probably a good idea to move along and take a next step in order to move it along the curve into live trading. We haven't made the decision yet that it will go into live trading, but we're taking it to the next level, right? At that point, another person that has not yet written the code will be asked to write independent code from scratch, just a new set of code, right? In order to reproduce the results that we have just had a look at to make sure that there aren't any major bugs and stuff. And uh, be sure, it most of the time, probably all the time, there's a little bit of a difference. You can figure out where these differences come from. Different types of different rolling techniques, for instance, right? The contract rolled on a different day, stuff like that. But what you really want to achieve is that those two researchers agree on that thing. And then thirdly, uh, there's yet another person that is in charge of putting everything into the productive environment into live trading code. Not all of which runs in like the Python research environment. And so this is another final third check layer because this person also has to come up independently with the same output. Yep, absolutely. Cool. All right, next questions. There are, I think, several. It's a long email I see here. So uh, a long one from Zach. So I'm just going to dive into it and we'll see how we go. I'm wondering on developing a trend-following strategy, I'm trying to use ETFs, inverse tracking as well as commodity-specific, to gain exposure when signals are triggered. I understand that the use of ETFs has limitations compared to futures, but I'm limited currently due to the type of investment accounts used to hold my investing capital. Do either of you know of any research articles or papers from trend-following firms that explore the effectiveness of trend-following strategies when using ETF products for exposure? Let me go on with the next question. We can do two at a time. Also, when one is looking at adding a market to track trade and is trying to determine if the market is liquid enough to trade, what measures might one consider the daily volume relative to size, etc. We've just actually spoken about that. So I'm sure, Zach, that you will have heard uh, our answer to that already. So let's stay with the first one. In terms of ETFs, I'm not so sure, Moritz, on this one. I, I don't know why, but I get the feeling that perhaps some of the trend-following, well, there is a trend-following ETF, isn't there, in the US? Is it Wisdom Tree? Is it um, that has a... a a trend following ETF. And I wonder whether they actually trade ETFs in that product in order to gain their exposure. I think it's the one that Faber uses for his portfolios, if I'm not mistaken. Does that ring a bell? I'm not sure about that ETF there. I, I know of one systematic trend following ETF that did exist, which is now closed since a couple of weeks. Uh, that has been the JP Morgan Managed Futures ETF, I think right. it's called. Okay but they closed that down. But I think Zach's question is more about using ETFs yes. as opposed to futures contracts Yes. when, when building a trend-following strategy. And as we've said, I think there's on the long side, so buying ETFs, say you're buying the SPY instead of trading S&P 500 futures, right? Yes, you will need to come up with a capital or you need a brokerage account that 
lets you buy the ETF on margin, all of which exists, right? So it's a little bit different than the futures contract because, you know, the funding that's implied in the futures contract is changing all the time and it therefore will give you slightly different results. But, you know, at the end of the day, those tiny differences, they're really not decisive for the overall performance of your system. So yes, you can use ETFs on the long side. Now on the short side, and, you know, this is important for a trend following system is that, at least I think that way, is that you do allow for shorts. Shorts are very diversifying and you want to have them included in your portfolio, I think. I know there's people that trade long flats and they never go short, but let's say you want to enable your system to go short. You now have to short that ETF, which means you will depend on a securities lending market for that product, which, you know, for some products they do exist. And uh, the last time I had a, a closer look at that, they're also liquid enough so that you can locate, your broker can locate the stock or the ETF and you can borrow it and then sell it short. There is a securities lending fee, a borrow fee that you will have to pay when doing that. And the disadvantage with that is, well, twofold. First off, the historical data for borrow fees is not easily obtainable, which means that when you do a backtest and then you assume in your backtest that you would have been able to short the ETF, say back in 2005, for a securities lending fee of, I don't know, 50 bips or something like that, you don't know whether that has been 50 bips back then. And you probably will find it difficult to find a database that, that includes numbers such as these. Those are numbers that, you know, some of the banks, some of the dealing desks, they uh, put into a database for their own use, like their own lending rate and the market lending rate. But it's not, like I said, easily obtainable, definitely not through CSI. You can't get it through Bloomberg and stuff like that, right? So there's a limitation for your backtest because you will need to make an assumption that you would have been able to borrow the stock 10 years, 15 years, 20 years ago, ETF, not the stock, uh, for a certain fee. And that is an assumption that you don't have to make when you look at the futures price. When you use futures contracts, you can buy them, you can sell them, you can long them, you can short them for the price that's quoted, right? And yes, you take into account slippage and stuff like that and commissions, but in that sense, they're easier to work with. But secondly, and I think this is not to be overlooked, is that you can be called away. The, the position that you have, the ETF that you have shorted can be called away from you for instance, during a short squeeze, and you think that you are short and you want to stay short because your system tells you, hey, this is no time to do a reversal or exit the short. You should be staying short, but your broker will come after the security and take it away from you because the person or the market participants that borrowed it to you, let that lend it to you in the first place, want back and you are obliged to give it back to them. And again, this is something that doesn't happen with futures contracts, right? If you have a futures contract and you're short that futures contract, you decide when you want to exit that position. Finally, because I've heard this as part of your question, is the inverse ETFs. I think many people, probably still too many people, think that by buying an inverse ETF, so instead of buying the SPY, right, you want to go short, so you buy the inverse SPY. Many people think that by buying the inverse SPY, it gets them one-to-one -one short that market. And in most cases, this is not true because those products have a daily or periodic reset features built into the pudding. So what you get is the inverse of the daily rate of return. 
or the inverse of the weekly rate of return, depending on how often they reset. So for a one-day period, this is always a correct calculation. But with the trend-following trading system, you'll probably find that you want to hold on to your short for a longer period of time than just one day, right? And when you hold on to an inverse product for more than one day, it starts to deviate from the short performance that you would have by being just, say, short the futures contract or having borrowed the security and sold it short in the market because there's a compounding effect that starts distorting your P&L. The internet is nowadays full of explanations around that. When those products first came up, probably around 2009, 2010, if I remember correctly, they're about 10 years old now, right? When they really started to, uh, to kick off. A lot of people really didn't know about that and they got, they got surprised by it. And there were complaints around it, right? Because it hasn't been made transparent to them, et cetera, et cetera. But nowadays, if it just, you know, put it into Google, inverse ETF or leverage ETF and compounding, you'll find a bunch of papers and a bunch of, you know, articles and blogs explaining in detail what happens there. So I would not recommend opening a short position for a trend-following trading system by being long an inverse or even leveraged inverse ETF or ETN. Very good points, Amart. I have nothing to add, but I think that's really helpful. And I'm sure Zach is making lots of notes. There's one more question from Zach, which touches on something we talked about earlier. But let me ask it because I do think it, it raises a couple of interesting aspects and it, it does relate to correlation. So the question is, when it comes to understanding how one market might correlate to another market or the action of one's portfolio, how large of a sample size should one consider? A sample size as large as one's look back time, if using a breakout strategy, question mark, the correlation for an entire data set spanning many years, or is it best to drill down and explore the correlation between two markets during specific intervals, such as February, March 2020 bear market or the 2009 or two, to 2018 bull market? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, my answer is there, as, as usual, there is no the best method. It is in the eye of the beholder what best is for them. But what I'm interested in is a very long-term correlation measure, a very long-term view on dependency between two markets. So I will take many, many years, maybe even the full sample size of market data that is available to me and look for the general average level of correlation between those two markets and i will then make i know that correlations are not stable they change all the time every correlation changes so i need to take that into account you know i can figure out what the average correlation or the median correlation or a certain percentile correlation between two markets has been in the past i now know that what i'm looking at is a thing of the past. It's it's an artifact. It may be different in the future. So I need to make an educated slash conservative estimate for that level that I want to use in the future. But this is how I go about it. It's like what you said earlier, Neil. Simple rules is sometimes all that's needed. I don't think that your trend-following trading performance is going to benefit one bit from a stochastic correlation model or any super complex way of figuring out correlation depending on timeframes that you're trading and things like that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm stretching too far out of the window here. But I don't think that this is the key ingredient that you will need for your trend following performance. 
And then on top of that, I think you can go one step further if you want. And it, this does depend on your methodology of risk management because as people who have listened to us talk, the way Moritz does uh, his risk management position sizing trades, et cetera, et cetera, will be different to the way we do it. But I think you also have to consider whether you want to look at correlations of markets or correlations of positions because these are different and how changes in your positions may affect your overall risk levels, et cetera. So, so this is an important point, And I think it's a really interesting area to maybe look a little bit closer into. Generally speaking, I think correlation is interesting. And of course, there is, it's, um, as, as Mart said, they change. So it's, it's really hard even to, even to determine, okay, so what time frame should I use for my correlations? It's a little bit like volatility, right? So we think about market volatility and, you know, deciding what volatility look back period you want to use or what look back period you want to use for calculating your volatility is also important because short-term volatility can be very different from the long world long-term volatility. So great question, Zach. Hope you got something out of this. And thanks for your kind words. And notice as well that you've also been listening to the new Global Macro Series and think they're great and have passed them on to your friends. So we certainly appreciate that very much. Last question today is from uh, Michael. Michael writes about when do you place your trades? I use a moving average crossover system. I run my system just at or after 4 p.m., when the stock market closes, assuming I'm at my computer and place my trades then. This is fine for most futures markets, which continues to trade until 5 p.m. But many of the commodities, corn, soybeans, wheat, coffee, cocoa, sugar, cotton, and perhaps others I, that I don't trade close earlier and I'll either have to run my system for them earlier or to wait until the next open and risk having the market gap at the open. But since I have a day job, I can't be running systems throughout the day unless I totally automate, which is feasible, which isn't feasible at this time. <laughs> right now, I generally just run systems at the close and anything I can't trade then waits until the next open. Either that evening for those that trade overnight or in the morning for those that don't. But even though that is tough sometimes if I'm busy in the evening or in the morning. So how do you guys handle this? Do you run your systems after the close, trade at the open, or accept risk gap, et cetera, et cetera? Martz, I'm sure you have a good answer for that. Yes, I guess my answer is the most important thing to me when I hear questions like that is that one should design the system in such a way that you will be able to follow it. Not from a, in that, in that instance, not from an emotional point of view, which is something that we've touched on many times in earlier conversations, but from an operational point of view, right? Design your system in such a way that, you know, when it produces a signal that you have an appropriate amount of time, because there's always a lack if it's not fully automated, you have a time that fits your personal lifestyle to actually put on the trades and hit a level that your system is also pointing to. So if you're running your system, say, at night, after the markets have closed, you're coming you know, home from work, run it, produce the signals, maybe based on the close. And for instance, you could trade on the next day's close, right? With a one day lag, you know, maybe, maybe that is something that you could do, or you can place orders for the next open. And yes, there is going to be uh, a gap, right? But 
if you design your system such that it also points the entry or the the exits to that you know next open or the next close then well there's no gap because then you're actually looking to hit those points and finally with with our holding periods or at least with my average holding period whether i put the position on the next day's open the next day's close or even 2 3 maybe 4 day 4 days later yeah there will be an impact right but in the bigger scheme of things, it is not too much of a problem. Yeah, I want to add to that. I mean, what you said is absolutely correct. I want to expand a little bit on that. On a no-names basis, I actually can't remember if the guest told us before or after we turned off the recording, but one of our guests who certainly is uh, incredibly well-versed in trend following shared with us that they put on their trades several days after the signal is generated and they found that to be optimal, frankly. So Moritz, you're absolutely right that uh, we probably with our holding period shouldn't be too concerned whether it's at the close or at the open or even a day or two after that. So even though it's incredibly hard maybe to do because you think, well, I got my signal. Why do I have to wait two days to get on my trade? I mean, this is just how we humans are built for this taking action straight away kind of thing. But again, test it, find out what what seems to work. And as Moritz said, most importantly, find a way that allows you to follow it 100%. That's the most important. I think consistency, uh, even down to the time when you execute is, is, is very important in, in what we do. I agree. Those were the questions. Michael, Zach, Walter, Bruno, thanks so much. And the other Mike will definitely get back to your question uh, when we have Rob on in a couple of weeks, I think it is. So this was great. What else is on your mind today, Moritz? Maybe one thing I noticed, and I would really like it if we could at some point have a question from a female listener. I don't think we've <laughs> ever had a question from a woman. I love that. I know we're trading shouldn't be just a boy's game or a boy's uh, thing to do. So I'd really like it if at some point we would have a female ask you a question. I think that's a, that's a great challenge. So hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see a, a great uptick in questions from the female part of our listener base, uh, maybe even next week or the week after. It is, of course, summer holidays, so uh, we'll see. Why you think of another good thing, which was actually, this was great. But if you have anything else more on your mind, let me just quickly run through the numbers. Now, these are not month and July numbers because I do think they are still at the end of Thursday, at least for most of them. But it was a good month for uh, CTAs of all sorts, really short term, long term, medium term. So the beta 50 looks like it's going to finish up July about 3% bringing it also into positive territory for the year, slightly, but still. The search and CTA index up 2.5%, getting close to about flat for the year, just down about 18 basis points. The shock gen trend index had a good month, up more than 3%, up more than 2% for the year. The short-term traders index had a quiet month, up a half a percent, but doing great on the year, up 35 Bridge alternatives up 3.3%. For the month of July, up 1.8%. Uh, and to put that in perspective, we had the MSCI World Equity Index up 4.69%, but still down two and a quarter for the year. And the World Government Bond Index was up 94 basis points for the month of 
July. So what else do you want to throw in on this Sunday afternoon? No mas. I think that's been great. Uh, nothing more to add. I wish everybody a great uh, start to the month of August, some good weather, and happy trading. Yeah, I mean, August has certainly, uh, in the past, proven to be an interesting month, I think. Long-term capital went bust in August of that year, 98, I think, whatever it was. So let's see what happens. Uh, this year, of course, there is no debt ceiling in the U.S., as uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth told us that there is no debt ceiling to negotiate this month of August uh, in 2020. So that's not going to be the cause, but there could certainly be some other geopolitical tension that um, might result in a little bit more action than what we saw in um, in July. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope you have enjoyed it. And of course, keep your questions coming, especially if you're female, as Marge said. You can email them to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll do our best to get them on as soon as we can. And of course, you are also able to follow us on Twitter from Moritz and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.